Welcome listeners. This is Diane Wilson, host of the Genius Podcast. And today I have a very special guest. This is someone that I've got to know on social media. And I think you'll enjoy his presence in the same way that I do. I, I feel like you convey such wisdom honestly, in such sort of calmness. And now, you know, more in your posting and interactions, I see more of you. So this is, well, I'll let you introduce yourself here, but this is someone that I think you'll enjoy. And we're going to talk about anxiety. Definitely, Diane, I really appreciate the kind words and um, it's mutual. I've really enjoyed following you on social media. That's how we got to meet. And uh, I really enjoyed following your work. Uh, congratulations on your recent book, by the way. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I wanted to talk with you about this area of expertise of yours that is so relevant right now. Anxiety is so important. And I think many people really need to understand it more and, and need to know what someone like, like you does in, in terms of helping patients. But first of all, l- let's talk about what you do day in and day out, just kind of giving people a thumbnail sketch of what you do in your work as a psychiatrist. Yeah, thank you, Diane. So um, I'm a practicing board certified psychiatrist and you know, my job is to help people suffering from different mental health conditions. Um, and for example, people suffering from depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder or different personality disorders. And I do that through medication management and uh, psychotherapy uh, because health is biopsychosocial. There are biological, psychological, and social forces that affect our physical and mental health. And therefore, um, treating these different conditions requires a holistic approach. So that's kind of what I do. Uh, Monday through Thursday, I, you know, I treat my patients in the outpatient setting uh, in my office. And on Fridays, I, I have the privilege of treating doctors for um, a couple local hospitals here in Northeast Ohio. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So let's jump into this important topic then, what are some of the hallmark cognitive and physiological symptoms of anxiety? What, what kinds of things do you look for? What kinds of things do people report to you? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So let, let me take a step back and, and, and define anxiety. Um, so anxiety is that feeling of dread that we experience in anticipation of something, right? It's that feeling that we experience before taking an exam or before a job interview. And it's because we're looking ahead and to experience anxiety is to be human. It's a human experience that we're all very familiar with because from an evolutionary standpoint, the function of the brain is to generate anxiety. Mm -hmm. If we consider the environment from the point of view of our ancestors, you know, they go for a drink at a pond. Maybe there's a gator lurking for them under the under the water, right? Or maybe there's a cheetah behind a bush. So our brain, its job is not to make us happy; it's to protect us um, from potential dangers. Now, the environment has changed rapidly the last hundred years, but evolution happens at a snail's pace. So we experience anxiety because it's part of being human. Now, what happens is for some people, anxiety affects their day-to-day functioning. It makes it hard for them to socialize, to work. They experience physical symptoms of anxiety that are debilitating. And that's when somebody has an anxiety disorder. They they go beyond the experience of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Now, back to your question, there are physical and cognitive symptoms of anxiety, right? So 
when we experience anxiety, we experience a host of physical symptoms such as heart racing, shortness of breath, uh, our muscles tense up. So we can experience, for example, tension headaches. We may get a stomach discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we might feel lightheaded. And that's because we're activated. We, we um, have an activation of our flight or fight system. And mm-hmm. that creates these physical symptoms uh, in anticipation of a potential danger. Um, we also experience cognitive symptoms. And the, the, the usual thought that's associated with anxiety is, uh, what if something goes wrong here? What if I fail an exam? What if I get rejected? What if I get judged? What if something happens to my kids? And these what if worry thoughts, these cognitive thoughts, they can make it hard for us to sleep at night. They can make it hard for us to focus. They can be exhausting, right? It can be exhausting Mm -hmm. to like have these worry thoughts running through our minds. Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the physical and cognitive presentations of anxiety. Yes, yes. I know this is a global pandemic, but what kinds of things are you seeing most of? And if it's anxiety, like how is it manifesting? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. So I feel that the pandemic has had three phases when it comes to to anxiety. The first phase I recall was March or April of 2020, and people were really afraid for their safety. I remember we ran out of toilet paper. I remember it was super hard to find food at the grocery stores or cleaning supplies. So people were really afraid for their survival. Um, I remember I would go grocery shopping before work. I'd get up super early and try to find some you know, food or supplies, go yeah. home and then go to work. So it was a pretty um, anxiety provoking time. Mm-hmm. I think around the winter time, around uh, November, December, People were struggling because they were wondering, when is this ever going to end? So mm-hmm. thinking about the pandemic never ending created a lot of despair in people and anxiety and depression too, especially during a dark time, literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Lately, what I'm observing is people with anxiety having a hard time going back out in, into, the, into the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I'm seeing people with germophobia, such as people with like OCD, and fear of contamination, they're having a hard time going at that out in public. What if I get contaminated? Or people with different mm-hmm. types of anxiety, such as panic attacks, mm-hmm. they're having a hard time going back out in public because they've been deconditioned. They've been staying at home all this time. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there's some there's a safety, a feeling of safety being at home so that when you're going out in public, that yeah. can be very difficult to kind of um, get back, get used to that. I think now people are concerned about, you know, the Delta variant and can vaccinated people carry that? And, you know, some of the anxiety is from not knowing and some of it is anxiety stuck patterns. And so it's, it's very hard to sort through. Yeah. You bring up a really good point at how, when we have anxiety, we want to avoid, we want to stay at home, right? It's an avoidance behavior. Um, It feels safer to be at home than to be out in the public. You know, what if I get contaminated? What if I experience a panic attack in public? What if I am judged for Mm -hmm. something that I say or do? And I agree with you that a lot of people are kind of having a hard time going back out in the public after they've kind of shrunk their world. So that's a really good observation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
I think in also in some ways though, during the pandemic that you see sort of uncommon courageousness or connection between people that it's almost like when the chips are down, you, you see more people can be more than they ever thought they would be. It, it, I, I see that. Yeah, I agree with you. We can't, we can't have uh, courage without fear. You know, that's a really good point that when we're put through these difficult times, mm-hmm. it's also an opportunity for us to discover how resilient we are and how much we're capable of. Uh, th- there are two forces that make us anxious. One is uncertainty, the unknown, but the other one is feeling powerless. The example I tell my patients is if I'm outside my office in the, in the, in the parking lot and there's a cheetah running at me, there is no uncertainty. I am certain the cheetah will maul me. It'll catch me and it'll maul me. It's stronger, mm-hmm. faster than me. Mm-hmm. Powerlessness fuels anxiety. But hopefully the past year and a half, people are realizing that they're resilient, that mm-hmm. they're able to overcome even a pandemic. And hopefully that feeling of empowerment is reducing anxiety for a lot of people. That's one of the messages that I'm trying to share with, with, with many of my patients. Mm-hmm. It's like, we made it, not that we'll, you know, be safe forever, but we made it this far that, that for whatever reason, a lot of people didn't and, and we are alive. I, I love that thought. It's, it sort of brings you into the moment of mm-hmm. the experience and, and making the most of, of things. It's in some ways felt very random, the people that pass and the people that don't and the circumstances it's it's just sort of fascinating it's like like a lot of life compressed together like there's dog years you know one year equals one human year it's pandemic year one year is equal to a decade of experience and learning and seeing just all kinds of things that's a really good point of view how when we're going through tough times there are also opportunity for growth Mm-hmm. You know, stress is how we grow, right? Um, you know, when somebody lifts a weight, mm-hmm. they're building muscle, you know, they're putting their muscle under stress to build their muscle tissue. You know, when somebody puts their body physically through a run, that stress builds our cardiovascular and pulmonary capacity. Uh, I think the same holds true for our emotional capacity. I think when we go through these stressful times, though tragic, so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's heartbreaking that we've lost so many people and so many people are also like, like they've lost jobs or they're having long-term physical symptoms from the COVID. It's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, many people have overcome and that stress hopefully is providing them with a renewed sense of empowerment and ability to overcome. Mm-hmm. So in our culture, there's so much obsession with achievement and, and um, how, uh, especially, you know, going through medical school and, 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 and all, it, it's like in watching the new interns as they start, what thoughts do you have on that? Having been through this kind of seasonal and in some ways the season is for a lot of, a lot of people, you know, or anticipating going back to school and, and those things. It's, it's like our, are wanting to do good and anxiety. Just, I know that's like a multiple question and yeah. 
Yeah, let's go beyond. Yeah, that's a great question, though. Yeah, I mean, I think we live in a society that worships at the altar of achievement. You know, it's a very achievement-oriented society. And I think there are a couple of myths that propel that. I think, number one, there's this fallacy that success equals happiness. Mm -hmm. Um, We see people who are successful and we assume they're happy. And as human beings, we engage in affect forecasting, which means that we try to predict how endeavors will make us feel in the future. And we pursue those that we believe will lead to pleasure and happiness. Mm-hmm. But we fall for a trap known as the impact bias, which means that we overestimate how much happier we will be in the future. Mm-hmm. So when I was younger, I had assumed that becoming a physician would be a guaranteed path to happiness. And like most physicians, I, I did well in college, four years of med school, mm-hmm. four years of residency for me, which is specializing in psychiatry. And then I became an, a, an attending physician. And then I realized, wait, 40% of doctors are burned out here, you know? So you go on this path and you, you take on student loans. A typical doctor graduates with about 200,000 in student debt. After 12, oh, that's, yeah, you can look this up. It's 12, it's 200,000 is about the average. Um, and, and thank God I paid that off. But I'm just saying it's a huge sacrifice time-wise, emotionally mm-hmm. um, to, to become a physician. And 40% of them are burned out. Oh my God. And uh, yeah, they have higher rates of suicide than the general population. So again, I I think if you know that at 18, you're probably not going to go pre-med in college. Mm -hmm. If you know those statistics, those numbers. Now, again, it's been a privilege and a blessing to be a physician. And I truly appreciate the opportunity to to serve and help other people. Mm -hmm. But when you succeed in life, it's not just peaches and cream. It's not just sunny days at the top of the mountain. There's plenty of days when it's overcast. There's plenty of rainy days. There's plenty of challenges um, because success also comes with greater responsibility and greater being under greater scrutiny, right? Mm-hmm. Being held at a higher standard. And I think people glamorize, idealize success and forget that it's a, dub- it's a double-edged sword. There's two sides of the coin. And I think social media plays a role in that as well, you know, because when we're on social media, we're comparing our real messy lives with glamorized lives as they are here on social media. And anytime you go on social media, you're comparing yourself to a bunch of lives as they appear on your on your stream. It's not just a one on one comparison. It's 30, 40 lives in, in, in a minute. Mm-hmm. So when you experience this discrepancy between your life and other people's lives, mm-hmm. it creates this feeling to do this, this, this need to achieve in order not yeah. to feel like you've fallen behind. What do you think? I, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm thinking of something that, that you did that just really made me smile on Instagram. And we can take this out if you don't like this example, but you drank your, um, your child's juice. <laughs> And you you shared it like, Dad, don't drink my juice was your your child's note. And I thought that was like so beautiful. It's it's like you don't have to be perfect. Like you're like you and it's really touching that people would be on social media and say, okay, you know, sometimes if I'm really thirsty, I may drink that juice box, but I'm still a good dad. Yeah, she put me in my spot. So um for people, for people who don't know, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and a five-year-old, she's a firecracker, you know, she keeps me on my toes. And 
you know, we give her a juice box here and there. And I, you know, we, I don't want her drinking the entire juice box. So she'll have half of it. She'll put it in the fridge. Maybe dad consumes the other half. <laughs> she had enough of it after a while. So she actually wrote, you know, Baba in Greek, which means dad, don't drink. <laughs> and she like taped it on her like half full juice box. So Saturday morning when I took a look at the fridge, I had that note waiting for me. So yeah, you know, like sometimes even, a child, a five-year-old will put us in our spot, you know? Yes, <laughs> that's really sweet. But I agree. I think that especially I, I can imagine that looking at people from the outside is not the same as how they feel. And, and some people I think that are very successful at, at, you know, making connections and getting to know a lot of people at, on social media can really find that space of, this is life. This is my life. I'm just sharing this with you. And thanks for being on the journey. And I'm going to drink that juice box tonight. If <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? That authenticity that, that authenticity. we can really yeah, connect with. Which That's is so lacking. I feel like it's mm -hmm. so lacking in social media. I mean, again, social media has its pros. That's how we met. For example, mm -hmm. it helps me keep in touch with family in Greece. It's, it reminds me of people's birthdays, which is really helpful. But yes. if we're not intentional or mindful, we can really climb up the wrong tree with social media. Yes, it's very interesting, especially in terms of anxiety and some of the things that people can can suffer because of that. It's it's funny. I, I have seen people on social media that you'll make a connection with them and then they drop off. And then I'm always wondering, like, are they OK? <laughs> it's like I take this very seriously. So um. I tell myself every morning, if I get one like, it's a good day. That means like somebody <laughs> benefited from my tweet mm -hmm. and I've, I've moved on. Just like if I can get one like, yes. I bar pretty low. Cause like that, that one person matters. Whoever that person is, it matters. Yeah. I don't want to fall into the trap of needing more and more and more to get the same effect. Cause that's what success does. You know, once you taste the sweet nectar of success, then you want yeah. more and more, right? I don't mm -hmm. care if it's titles or likes or followers, whatever they, that the metric is that we're using. So every morning mm -hmm. I tell myself, did one person like it? Yes, great. Okay, I helped somebody this morning um, through social media, hopefully. And okay, it's, 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 it's a good day. It's a good start to my day. Yes, I think, I think that's a powerful thing. And that's really one of the things I like about I don't know. I honestly do find a lot of wisdom in the things that you share. It's, it's a good thing. It's good for, it's good for everyone. And many come from just my day to day, my, my job, you know, people come to me and, and they come to you too with like with their life stories. Mm -hmm. And my inspiration comes from my patients. You know, they, they come to me with their life stories and I'm sitting in the front row, listening carefully, trying to analyze what they're saying to me. And I'm sure you're doing the same. Mm -hmm. And there's so much wisdom in a human being's life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what a blessing that we can sit in front of, you know, 10 people a day, five people a day, 15 people a day, and just learn from them mm -hmm. because they come to us with their problems and we're trying to help them walk through these different problems. And that, mm -hmm provides us with knowledge and wisdom. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So yeah. my, my, my morning tweets, honestly, did you just come from people that I get to like, listen to carefully? And obviously I, I, there's no uh, disclosure of any identities, obviously, but I just, I get the concept from them, the inspiration, the wisdom, and I mm -hmm. try to share with other people in, in an attempt to help. 
That's, it seems like a great or orientation to that. It really does. How do you, how do you help people? And this is going to be a really hard question, but what's the most helpful thing in, in dealing with anxiety? Like, what do you, how do you approach that? Then? I think when it comes to mental health, I think the number one thing for us to do is to give people the space to express their thoughts and feelings mm -hmm. and to make sure that we can understand them as fully as we can, because mm -hmm. so many people are dismissed and invalidated in society. For example, you know, somebody might have anxiety, might be afraid, might be stressed, mm -hmm. and somebody may tell them, hey, calm down, you're, you're okay, it's okay. And that is so dismissive and invalidating. I, th I mean, I think people mean well, mm -hmm. if it's spouse references that to, to someone, but it's really dismissive and invalidating. I think the first step is, is giving someone space to express their point of view, because why I have anxiety may be different than why you have anxiety or why somebody else has anxiety. So giving people space, developing that relationship, that therapeutic alliance, that trust, mm -hmm. because it's hard to do therapy. Well, I'd say it's almost impossible to do therapy without having that trust. In, in a relationship, every relationship requires trust. And I think that's the foundation. I think at that point, then I look at what the person is dealing with. Is their anxiety more like the physical symptoms? So they need coping skills to regulate their body. Are they more cognitive based? Their worry thoughts and challenging their worry thoughts. Is it something from their past that's triggering them? Um, so based on what they tell me, that's how I proceed. But the first step, I, I believe, in therapy is having that strong therapeutic alliance. Right now, I'm very infatuated with the idea. No, I'm in love with the idea of heart rate variability training. I'm digging deeper into that. I'm actually wearing my chest monitor right now. I'm trying to keep breathing <laughs> like I've been doing all day. And, um, you know, just really looking at my physiological responses and how they're wired. Because I personally felt like the pandemic, even though I was mood management that my body was kind of constricted that it is kind of shaping itself around the anxiety and just in ways I didn't understand so I think that your um, perspective on you know the body the emotions and then the thoughts is is really a good one and trying to understand where people are at can you tell me more about that device I mean it makes a lot of sense um, mm -hmm. how long have you had it do you wear it all day what, what's what's that experience like for you Yes, I'm heart rate variability has to do with the it, it you may know this but for our listeners it has to do with the flexibility of the nervous system the autonomic nervous system to move between the fight and flight you know our stress response to the rest and digest the parasympathetic and um if we're under stress for a long time we can get stuck physiologically in the sympathetic nervous system and that affects sleep and sleep affects everything. So I just have a bend toward looking more at the physiology than because of the work I do in neurofeedback. So um, this device is Polar H10 and, and I have a device on my, I'm, this is what I do. I'm just like a terribly geeky person. I love things like this, but it's on my iPad. And um, so I can see you know, the variability of my heart rate, not right now, not. Yeah. Right now. Does it notify you when the 
heart rate remains elevated for a certain period of time or if it goes above a certain threshold, does it send you like a signal? Uh, there probably is a device that does that, but this one has like, um, gives me a score in the morning for my readiness. Mm -hmm. Like it tracks how my heart and physiology is working. And that's interesting because I'm also using my Fitbit to, to analyze my sleep. I mean, you, if you listen to Dr. Singh, you'll be doing all this too. <laughs> or um, yes. So, I mean, this is the kind of work I do though. So I'm looking at the quality of my sleep and then how my heart rate pattern is. It doesn't look at, um, it doesn't notify me. I have to check in on it, but then it gives me periodic check-ins if I want to do them. So I can plot it across time. That's awesome. And that's a very scientific way of going mm -hmm. at anxiety or any other, you know, mental health condition, because having the data provides us with the information to make the necessary changes. Like a lot of times we're experiencing physical symptoms of anxiety or any other condition, and we're not even aware of it. So it sounds like just having that information can mm -hmm. be very helpful to self-regulate. Yes. Yes. People probably can do a certain amount of it on their Fitbit, looking at their heart rate, their resting heart rate, and does it change across time and, and all. But yeah, I, I like your perspective on looking at it, especially as a medical doctor, that you're, you know, you're a keen on these different layers. It's, that's, that's a really good thing. Definitely. Um, when I read your, your book, um, brain dance, uh, you, you described the concussion that you had in 2005, I think, if, if I'm correct. Uh, yeah. did you use devices like that to help you overcome some of the symptoms that you had at that time? Yes, that's exactly. So I was always interested in the, in the brain. I just am one of these people that is naturally pretty geeky on the brain front. <laughs> I have just all kinds of books on the brain and, and would enjoy reading them. But, um, but then when my injury happened, that was the way out. Nothing else had really been used before then. And, and seven months into it, I had a brain scan and it gave me a number on why I was having the experience I was. And so that's, and then with the training, I, I love things that you can graph and chart and see the difference. And so, it was life-changing for me. So do you see many people with head injuries or, or illnesses that contribute to anxiety then? When somebody presents with anxiety, it's, it's important to consider physical or medical causes of anxiety, right? So there are a number of endocrine conditions, for example, mm -hmm. uh, such as thyroid abnormalities or... Um, um, abnormalities with the uh, adrenal system that can contribute to anxiety. Mm -hmm. There are other forces such as uh, substance use, which is important to be considerate of because mm -hmm. people, for example, may consume substances that are activating and may exacerbate anxiety. Uh, one may have an underlying cardiac condition that may mimic panic attacks um, mm -hmm. and heart racing from anxiety. So it's important when somebody presents with anxiety to have had mm -hmm. a medical evaluation because you want to rule out any underlying uh, physiologic cause of anxiety. It's also important to take a look at someone's medication list because they may be on medications 
mm-hmm. that are anxiety inducing. If they're, for example, on a stimulant, for example, mm-hmm. um, or other medications that um, are activating in nature that activate the sympathetic nervous system. Um, so those are things that take place when uh, performing a medical evaluation on, on someone. Um, you you want to make sure that they've had a workup, a medical workup, and you're not missing anything else. That makes sense. That's a good idea. That sounds great. So I recommend to people to see their, their, their family doctor every year for their annual checkup. It's something that I do in my personal life, just, you know, just to make sure that your liver and your kidneys and your blood cells, that everything is, you know, um, up to par and that there's nothing underlying there um, that may be affecting one's uh, mental health. The same holds true for depression, because again, there are medications perhaps that are uh, more likely to induce depression, right? And fatigue or alcohol is a fantastic depressant. Alcohol does. It, it's a central nervous system depressant. So again, it's important to have a thorough medical workup to make sure nothing's being missed. Mm-hmm. I, I think you just answered this, but what, I, what is the most important thing someone with anxiety can do just for our listener who's going I'm anxious (laughs) maybe they they just feel anxious yeah boy that that's a tough question um Mm -hmm. it's a great question but it's a tough one because I'm trying to narrow it down like one thing Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to mental health and especially anxiety I think there's tremendous stigma against mental health conditions such as anxiety disorders, for example, I think there's a misconception out there that anxiety equals weakness and people experience a lot of shame over their difficulties with anxiety. And I think that shame exacerbates the problem because people are less likely to receive care and they're less likely to talk about it, their Mm -hmm. difficulties. So then they bottle everything inside Mm -hmm. and that just exacerbates the problem. So if I were to narrow it down to one thing is to say that it's okay to have difficulties with anxiety. Again, to have anxiety is to be human. It's a part of the human condition. And if the numbers, if I'm correct with the numbers, one third of people are, are estimated to have an anxiety disorder at some point in their lives. Oh my God. One third of adults mm-hmm. in the U S are estimated to at some point in their lives have such anxiety that's going to interfere with their day-to-day functioning Mm -hmm. and anxiety rates are on the rise as well. And this has been going on before the pandemic. So if we can normalize the conversation about our experience and our difficulties with anxiety, I think that is a huge step in giving people the, the space to pursue care. Mm -hmm. That's that's excellent. Being able to normalize a conversation around anxiety. When you say it, it sounds very compelling. That's what we need to do is talk about anxiety when people feel it. And because I think if we feel like we can't talk about it, it sort of grows. Do you, do you find that it's, it's like, yeah, it's a secret. Oh, yeah. I agree. That's a fantastic point. That point. And thank you. I think when, when we internalize, that's mm-hmm. the, it, it, it sets up the ground for shame to kick in. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it just, it grows and grows and it festers. That's a really good point. Mm-hmm. 
like what's your what's your biggest concern right now it's july it's we're a year maybe and a a year and then some into this pandemic you know with your ear and heart to people's lives what do you what's your biggest concern when when you say my biggest concern are you referring to like life in general or my personal life so i can have the proper um guidance um, either oh, oh, oh. good question let me think i think the biggest concern that I see right now mm-hmm. is that we're very divided as a nation mm-hmm. that, you know, we've gone to two sides and we're not willing to engage in civil discourse and people are making assumptions about people on the other side of the aisle. You know, it's me against you. It's left against right. And I wish we could stop stereotyping one another and I wish we could start to listen to one another and work together um, for the greater good. So, so that's my, I guess, greatest concern as far as what I'm listening to. Um, It often comes up in, you know, when people express their concerns Mm -hmm. and, you know, if you ever turn on the TV, which I barely do anymore, there's a lot of me against you Mm -hmm. and, I find that as my number one concern. I I wish we could go back to just having civil discourse and respecting one another's opinions, respecting one another's humanity, and find ways to communicate and collaborate despite differences. Mm -hmm. Um, That's my number one concern. What's yours? I think you nailed it. Yes, exactly. Without civil discourse is just really the key thing. It used to be that we agreed or we disagreed and then we would talk about it and maybe you were voted out but or disagreed with, but the world didn't fall apart. And, and now it seems like there's a lot of scapegoating and division. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. And conflict happens in all relationships. I mean, it happens in every marriage. It happens with loved ones. I mean, conflict is part of the human condition. And the beauty of conflict is that it allows for a deeper level of understanding and intimacy. Mm -hmm. Your point of view, here's my point of view. How can we find a way, find a middle ground here to work together? Um, I think the problem is that it's not conflict. The problem is that we don't know how to engage in conflict. I think that's the main problem. Mm-hmm. So that probably leads into the next one. It's like, what's your greatest hope? I hope that we will come out stronger from this adversity. You know, 2020 has been a, it was a grind of a year um, with a pandemic and conflict. And I hope that we can learn from these different challenges that we've been through mm-hmm. and that we can grow from these difficulties, that we can learn some valuable lessons Um, Mm -hmm. And part of that would be normalizing the conversation about mental health, because a lot of people struggled in 2020, be it with depression or anxiety. Um, Many people went through difficulties like losing loved ones or losing jobs or having financial hardship. Um, And I'm hoping that after going through such an experience, we can be more empathetic as a community Mm -hmm. and as a society, and we can 
find ways to to work together and grow from these difficult times that we've been through. Mm -hmm. That's really beautifully said. Any other questions I should ask you? You just have such good things to say and share, and uh, it's really great to talk with you. Well, Diane, I really appreciate the time. I, I thought we we did a great job of talking about anxiety and how some of the life circumstances that we've been through have contributed to that to that mm-hmm. experience. And I really enjoyed our our time uh, together. I really did. Mm-hmm. Yes, this has been very nice. So thank you very much, and um, I really appreciate this, and I think everybody else will. Time, Diane. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to this episode. And join us for our future episodes, which are equally fascinating. I'm thrilled by the people that we have invited to our our podcast, as well as some people we have so far planned for for the fall. It looks great. If you would ever like to be a guest on our podcast, then be sure to send me a note. I want to say a brief thanks to Dan Schiffmacher, who is my editor, my production person here. He makes everything better. And also to Cameron Wyant, who is my assistant, who makes us better and organized. (laughs) So it's, I say in life, to surround yourself with people that amaze you and that are kind. And I have been very lucky to have that. So thank you and come back again.